This episode is brought to you by Glassdoor. They can give you the inside scoop on a company from real employees before you apply for the job. We'll explain more in a bit, but first, let's get into the episode. As a leader, two things can be true. I am broken at the same time that I still strive to be joyful and to lead this company. And so I just think knowing what it means to be human and being okay as a leader, not compartmentalizing it and acting as if my heart's not broken and my world has just been turned upside down. I think that's the future of leadership. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Tashonda Brown Duckett. She is the president and CEO of the Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association of America, also known as TIAA. TIAA has $1.3 trillion in assets under management, wow, and has been providing a wide range of financial services for over 100 years. When she took the top job, Tashonda also became one of two Black women to currently run a Fortune 500 company and the fourth Black woman to ever do so. Prior to her role at TIAA, Tashonda had a, quote, meteoric rise. I love that way to describe someone's ascent in the world of finance and was the CEO of Chase Consumer Banking. Tashonda, we're so excited to talk to you and to get into your career. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, thank you so much. As we, we were saying, as we got mic'd up, we've been looking forward to doing this one for a really long time. So this is a bucket list for us. Before we talk about the really serious stuff. I want to talk about probably the most important question, which is what is your pump up music? Wow. I mean, I love some good gospel music. So something by Kirk Franklin always gets me pumped up. And of course, Mary J. Blige is always a go-to. I love it. She has a great song called Good Morning Beautiful mm-hmm. or Good Morning Gorgeous. Good and morning, I gorgeous. just love it. I think it's Good Morning Gorgeous. And I just, that's a really good song to wake up to and just remind yourself that you're worthy. I love that. So what I love about that song is that I think it was inspired by the mantra that she would say to herself every day in the mirror when she was going through a hard time. Do you have kind of an internal mantra that you use? Well, first I have several kids. And if you ask my youngest, who's six years old, what is she? She won't say she's a girl. She won't say she's black. She'll say she's smart, kind, and brave. And so that is something that I'm I'm really focused on is always affirming my children. So clearly that means I must affirm myself. And so the thing that I always anchor on is to know that I'm worthy and deserving. And so definitely I'm always trying to pour on myself as much as I try to pour onto others. I love that. We're going to go back into all of this, but I'm curious, what is the last show that you binge watched? Oh, so the last show that I binge watched was The Best Man, Final Chapters. Just, we, just we both just watched it. Oh, you so did? good. Was that not everything? Yeah, it was so, so good. good. Oh my goodness. Except for I want more. <laughs> I'm not satisfied with the like, Jordan Harper. Like, 
Don't spoil it. I totally am with you. I'm like final chapter remix, right. you yes. know, and, and definitely one of my girlfriends is Nia Long, who's just amazing. Oh, so we cannot be done yet with the best man. Absolutely not. Please tell her we want another one. Yes. When was the last time that you negotiated for yourself? Probably coming into this role as a CEO, clearly that's a process and you have to negotiate. That would be the big moment. But, you know, in this role that I'm in, you're always negotiating as you think about trying to drive a business. So negotiating is every day. But in terms of personal, I'd say when I made the shift to uh, join TIAA. What is the first job you got paid for? Putt, putt, golf and games. Do you guys even remember that? That was yes, like my very first sure job. Are you good? Listen, I was good talking to the kids and all that. But when it came to like watering the plants outside... I mean, I do not have a green thumb. And so I was just pouring all the water on each plant. And by the time I got to the third one, water was just pouring out of the first <laughs> one. <laughs> so, but was not good at that at all. But that was my first job. And I love hanging out with the kids. So that was kind of fun. How did, I don't know if that was full-time or part-time, but how did you find your- Part-time. Fir- okay. So then what was your first full-time job? My first full-time job was at Fannie Mae which I interned when I was, I think, a junior in college. How did you find that job? Inroads. I don't know if you've ever heard of Inroads, Carly or Danielle, but Inroads was my disruptor. It is a program that really provides exposure to minorities about corporate America. So I don't even think I heard the word corporate America until Inroads. And what's so great about this story, two quick nuggets. One is the power of information. Mr. and Ms. Patterson told me about this program. Otherwise, I never even heard of it. And so by them just sharing this information allowed me to ultimately ascend to this role. But what's so great about this story is that Fannie Mae had one internship role in Dallas. And so you're on a college campus and they're interviewing a bunch of students and a woman by the name of Valerie Manning, who was an HR recruiter, had to just find one intern. So she interviews me she goes back to Fannie Mae and she says, I found, you know, my intern. Guess what her name is? Sarah. <laughs> it was not me. But Valerie Manning said, but there's this other girl. Had Valerie Manning not said, but there's this other girl, I would not have started my career at Fannie Mae. And I think what's so great about this story is the power of advocacy. Even when I didn't really understand what advocacy meant, But Valerie Manning, she did not get any bonus points by adding another intern. It wasn't as if she was a big executive, but for whatever reason, she said, but there's this other girl. And so I share those two nuggets because I do believe in the power of information. We should all give it away freely because you never know who can change their life based on what you shared. And then secondly, not waiting for you to get to a certain level to advocate. You can advocate like Valerie Manning did for this young girl that ultimately, you know, started her career at at Fannie Mae and now is a CEO at TIA. So that's how I started my first job through Inroads, who I have so much love and respect for. Before we transition, I was going to say, what's the worst piece of advice you've gotten? (laughs) I wouldn't even consider it advice because if I didn't consume it, it wasn't advice. It was just someone giving me their personal opinion, I guess. But I'd say anytime someone will share, you know, maybe you should just wait a little longer 
I kind of think about it as I don't like my my food well done. <laughs> you know, it gets a little dry and is not as tender. And so I think when people put any type of barrier on, on me, I just don't want to receive that. And I just think there should be no barrier to what I can do. You can give me your perspective on what I can improve upon. You can give me your perspective on the things that you think I might want to learn. But I, I don't think that we should ever put a limit on someone. And clearly when someone's trying to limit me, that's an organ rejection. I'm going to start saying organ rejection for bad advice. Yeah. I mean, it's major, like my system can't take it. Right. I mean, and I think it's because I believe, especially for women, you know, I'm hyphenated, you know, I'm a mother, you know, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm a philanthropist or all these things. And so when someone tries to limit you, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit well in my spirit. The other thing that I would say is when people sometimes would share with me that maybe being a woman and being black is like a double negative. And I believe that's like my superpower. And so I think when people discount you because of maybe what has not always been seen, that is something that I just don't subscribe. You know, I, I feel like being exactly who I am gives me that fire in the belly. It's what taught me my grit and my tenacity. And so I'm like, don't water me down. Don't marginalize my gender or my race or where I'm from. Little do you know, that's the magic that allows me to be exactly who I am and where I am today. So you just gave me the, the perfect segue to, to my first question in this, which is who you are today and like where you came from. And I, I want you to kind of rewind back in time and just just describe to me like your family life growing up and sort of like what your childhood vibe was. Yeah, well, I'm super close to my family. So going way back, you know, my mother, Rosie Brown, my father, Otis Brown. So Otis and Rosie, just right there makes you want to smile, right? I'm literally smiling. Um, oh my God, it's just the best names ever. Exactly. <laughs> Otis and Rosie Brown, right? But you know, my mother is a retired educator. My dad worked in a warehouse, drove trucks. I was born in Rochester, New York and, and moved to New Jersey. And we were long on love and short on money. When I think about my childhood, it was full of laughter, discipline, but also I think the financial insecurity was also real. I know like my parents had big ambitions and, you know, I remember they, they signed us all up for karate and I didn't get past white belt, yellow stripe, <laughs> or, you know, the, my parents would sign me up for piano lessons and, you know, we couldn't sustain it. And so that is something that definitely resonates with me, but also I'd say what anchors me along with my parents and my brothers is my faith and just really what my parents instilled in me. My dad would tell me, you know, to always reach for the moon, because even if you miss, you'll be among the stars. And you think about a man like Otis Brown, who grew up in the segregated South, is telling his daughter to reach for the moon. My mother having strong character and, and telling us, you know, if you go to school and someone did not have their lunch money and you come home and tell me, you know, Carly didn't eat, my mom would say, so I'm sure you gave Carly your lunch because somehow, some way you would have a meal. So a lot of love, a lot of values, financial insecurity, and a lot of laughter and a love for sports is how I would describe my, my childhood. And they're my heroes. My brothers and my parents are truly my superheroes. Well, I want to be friends with and meet Otis and, and Rosie now. So yeah. one of the things, you know, <laughs> you described yourself a few minutes ago as kind of a multi-hyphenate of, you know, a mother and a daughter and an executive. I would also say like you are a champion of financial literacy. That is one of the hyphenates. And I'm curious, I mean, preparing for this interview, this seems to be something that you cared about 
when you were very young. How did that begin for you? I think it's a couple of things. I mean, one through observation, like I said, you know, my my parents were long on love and ambition, but short on financial resources. And I've shared this story publicly that I know so many people can relate to where you open up your refrigerator and you like, you don't see anything. You see the baking soda, but somehow, some way your parents would make a meal. And so when you see that, when you see how your parents strive to do their very best, but sometimes their best is not sufficient, that's, sticks with you. And I don't think I'm alone. I know there's so many, you know, millions and millions of Americans that have a similar story. I think starting my career at Fannie Mae, where I totally drank the Kool-Aid and understanding the power of home ownership. And I think through connecting the dots, you start to realize that money is emotional. You realize that So many of us would define your self-worth by your net worth. And so for me, I really want to make sure that we can have real conversations around financial literacy. I want to make sure that, you know, we all know it's not what you make, it's what you keep and that it doesn't define who you are. And then I would say, I remember this moment, Carly and Danielle, when I graduated from college and I was having this conversation with my dad and I saw his retirement statement. And to tell Otis Brown, who's a prideful man and has made so many sacrifices for his family, that dad, this is not going to be enough. And to see my father somehow, you know, take my advice and do the catch up and really make all the sacrifices, that really upset me. And it upset me for two reasons. One, this was a man who, like I said, like millions of Americans work really hard to provide their best. He had access to a 401k and never participated until I'm telling dad, you have to try to catch up. So the information was there. The benefit was there but it did not connect to a man working in the warehouse, a man driving trucks, a man trying to provide for his family. And so you can even hear in my voice that that puts a little fire in your belly to say, you know, we have to be intentional in talking about financial literacy and not make it something that, yes, you could Google it and all the information is there, but how does it connect to an Otis Brown? How does it connect to a 19-year-old girl starting her first job and feeling overwhelmed? Will she take advantage of all of her benefits or will she leave the money on the table? Your path in the the finance world, it's just been phenomenal watching your career. And obviously, the finance world is is not known for being the most diverse. I would say it's it's also not known in my opinion for having people who understand the value of of what you said, which is just speaking in plain English. You've attributed a lot of your success to relationships. How did you go about forging them in a way that felt right to you, especially when, you know, your story, your identity, your background is, you know, and just what you described is different than most of the people in that world? Relationships have to be authentic. You know, I know you all forged this great relationship years ago. If it wasn't real, it wouldn't last. And so I just go back to how I was raised relationships have to be real. They have to be authentic. And so I don't know any other way to be but to Shonda Brown Duckett. And I think it goes back to affirming myself and knowing that I am worthy and deserving and that the best shot that I have to having a real relationship is to be the best version of me unapologetically. And of course, you know, you learn that over time. We all work through all of our own issues, but I try to be vulnerable. I try to be 
just who I am. And so if you see me at work and then you see me outside of work, you'll still see me. And for me, that has worked out well. And P.S., it's the only way I would want to have this level of success. And one of the things that I've learned, you know, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome, right? And something that, you know, I share is that if, if we continue to subscribe to imposter syndrome in order to fit in, then as you're going through the ups and downs of life, you are watering the imposter so you never grow. And so I think this notion of what does it mean to fit in, the reality is being who I am and how I came from and who I am and all those other things, people see me. I can sit here and try to be in the box, but Carly, you'll still see this brown skinned girl no matter what. And what I've realized as a leader, you know, just the other day, there was this young woman who came up to me yesterday. We had a a, a talent um, engagement and she was wearing her hijab. And she said, Deshonda, I just want you to know that I decided to start to wear my hijab after she had an experience within her, her faith and her culture. And she was wearing it outside of work, but she wasn't comfortable yet wearing it to work. And she said, but I knew I was going to see you today. And I know you always talk about being authentic. And so I wanted my coming out day to be where you could see me. Wow. And so that to me is my why. That's amazing. I was just about to ask you, my next question was going to be, you know, you've gotten kind of the the moniker of being a people first leader. And I was about to ask you what that meant. And you told that story, which I think, you know, to me is the perfect way to describe that. What are some times that's been tested, especially in the past few years? Have there been some examples where you've really had to work to stay that people first leader or kind of seen it in a different light? Well, maybe I'll put a little spin on the spirit of your question, because I think during the pandemic, during the murder of George Floyd, it was all about the people checking in on each other, checking in on yourself and your family. And I would say during that time is when I probably hit my one of my lowest points. And I said publicly, it's okay to not be okay. You know, I was exhausted. I was exhausted mentally. I was exhausted emotionally. I was exhausted physically from just the long hours. And being okay as a leader to say that out loud and to say that I am exhausted and I am tired. I'm tired as a mother where you had your son, you know, ask you really tough questions while you're navigating a pandemic as an executive and the big collision just collided. And so that was tough. And I would say what I've learned as a leader is in those moments of vulnerability, that's when you can shine because that's when you get to see the best of everyone else. That's when you're able to see your colleagues have your back, your colleagues step up for you. That's when you're able to see the sisterhood rise and check in on you. So I think being that people leader and all those deposits that you've made over time, when you need to be lifted and when you need to be reminded, you get that return back tenfold. Um, and I, you know, the second story I'll just share, which is recent, I talked so much about my family and my brother suddenly passed away on November 13th, young. And, um, that's my rock. Thank you. And I received that. And I share this because as a leader, two things can be true. I am broken 
at the same time that I still strive to be joyful and to lead this company and to be a good mommy and all the other things that I'm doing. And so I just think knowing what it means to be human and being okay as a leader, not compartmentalizing it and acting as if my heart's not broken and my world has just been turned upside down. I think that's the future of leadership. I think the more that we are able to be human, I think the more you're able to earn the right to win hearts and minds, and you're able to earn the right for people to come in to be the best version of themselves because they know that they can also share their vulnerabilities in the same time when they're sharing their successes. First of all, I'm, I'm so sorry about your brother and thank you for, for sharing the perspective. And I think we both couldn't agree more. Is there an example of leadership that you have seen that either inspired you to do it really differently or inspired you to emulate? Oh, wow. When So first, you know, I always say publicly, I rent my title, I own my character. And so when you ask the question, I thought about so many people that embody what it means to be a leader, regardless of their rented title. Clearly, I'm inspired by someone like a Melody Hobson, who I adore. You know, clearly you can't help but be inspired working at J.P. Morgan Chase during the time that I did under a Jamie Dimon and a Gordon Smith. But I would also say I also recognize that what's inspired me are the cooks and the janitors and the secretaries that introduced my gender and my melanin into corporate America. They were leaders. They were trailblazers. I think leadership is when I see my colleagues at all different levels do their jobs with excellence inspires me. When I go to a client and they're talking about one of my colleagues and how they showed up, I'm taking mental notes like, wow, the way that person presented or the way they were able to overcome an objection or the way in which they honed in on the client issue inspires me. So my point is be present being inspired is all around you. It's not confined to a rented title. One of the most inspiring things that we see as entrepreneurs are when people take the leap, especially impressive women that we're so lucky to to know and to speak to on the show, but when they've they've found or they've created jobs that are not only a perfect fit for their career aspirations, but are jobs that they found can grow with their life. And I feel like that's something, Carly, that you and I have really worked on over the past 10 years is not just creating a business and a career for ourselves, but creating one that can flex and grow with us as our lives change. I think that's such a good point, Dan. And, you know, I think that's why a company like Glassdoor is so great because it gives you a, a sneak peek inside a company before you actually apply for the job with, you know, very candid reviews, sometimes salary information and answers from real employees. You can even filter reviews by diversity and inclusion, work-life balance, company culture, and more to help you get what you want out of your next role. You can learn more at Glassdoor.com. That is Glassdoor.com for more info spelled G-L-A-S-S-D-O-O-R.com. Something that we're asking all of our guests this season, Tashonda, I wanted to ask you, which is, is there a moment where you felt stuck or that things were spinning out of control? And how did you kind of take that moment and, and repivot it to gain control? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, those moments happen. By the way, welcome you know, to therapy. A lot, but one, yeah, like, let's have it. I, I'm here for it. 
<laughs> but, you know, I'll tell you this real moment. I call it the collision. You know, when your professional life and your personal life feels like it's colliding all at once and two things that you wanted so much happen at the exact what you think is wrong time. So I was six months pregnant with my second child when one of my goals was to run a PL. Like I'm talking first line PL, right? Profit loss, be on the business. And an opportunity came for me to run a PL. And literally, when that moment came, I almost talked myself out of the position or gave permission for the boss to take it back. So he says, you know, we want you to run this business. And the first words out my mouth were not like, oh, yes, I can do that. Look at my track record. It was like, you know, I'm six months pregnant, right? You know, it's a scheduled C and I'm going to be out for three months, right? <laughs> you know, and this weight gain is not from eating bonbons. And, um, he just looked at me. <laughs> he was like, you're coming back, right? I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. The reason why I share this story is because in the moment of like, oh, something that I wanted was right here in front of me. Having children, my second child was right here in front of me, what I thought is the exact worst time. So I'm literally doing the mental gymnastics and basically giving him permission to take it back. And so I share that story because it's such a real story on the mental gymnastics. And sometimes when there's an opportunity, we may not take full advantage of it or step into it with confidence. We may even talk ourselves out of it because we're saying it's not the right time or we're saying, you know, maybe I should wait. And so that was a real pivotal moment in my life where I said, you know, never again will I almost give someone permission to take something that I know I've earned and something that I want because I am trying to figure it all out and have it all reconcile. That was a real moment for me, if you will. And part of the reason I was so excited to, to speak to you today is, you know, you have four kids. I love your Instagram. You and and your husband seem very cute. <laughs> to be clear, more... in our prep, wait, can I just do an asterisk? In our prep yeah. for you, our team wrote, she and her husband are adorable. That's like what we got about yes. it. <laughs> Which is very true, but but even more impressive than that, you've talked about or described, you know, the idea of, of women and having a family and having relationship as the idea of having a, a diversified portfolio. What does that mean? <laughs> and like, how can I actually have one? Oh my goodness. So story. I remember I lived in New Jersey and I lived far where you would drive and then take a bus, commuter bus, and then take the commuter bus to Manhattan to take a subway or whatever cab to get to work. And I remember when I was leaving work one day and had on my navy blue suit, et cetera. I'm like the last person wearing a navy blue suit. The people are cleaning the Port Authority and I just break down and cry. And I called my husband and I was just like, I get up in the morning, I don't see my kids. I get home, I don't see my kids. You know, everyone on the bus is going to the casino and I'm just going home from work. I just broke. And I remember he said, now he is a Marine and an engineer and now a stay-at-home dad, but he said, then quit. <laughs> and I was like, that's not the point to quit. But his point was, nothing is more important than you being okay. So at that moment, I think I started to realize this whole work-life balance is a lie because it never reconciled. Trying to be a great mom, I was catching an L. 
thinking I was an okay wife catching an L, thinking I'm a good mom catching an L, a loss. And I just couldn't make it make sense. And so I shifted my mindset. So here it is, Danielle. Just like your money, a diversified portfolio is the best thing because over time you'll outperform. So I said, work-life balance is a lie. I'm going to live my life like a diversified portfolio. And here are some truth serums. I had to acknowledge and say out loud that I only can give 100%. There's no such thing as 110. I had to acknowledge that if I'm hyphenated, an executive, a philanthropist, a daughter, a girlfriend, et cetera, my children don't get 100% of me. They get like 30%. That's truth. So once I've acknowledged the truth, then I allocate. So you write down everything that matters to you, being a sister, a girlfriend, a wife, whatever it is, and you allocate. If everything is allocated in your portfolio, it can only add to 100. Here's the point. There will be market volatility. You will have to shift. Like when I became a CEO at TIA, I had to shift my allocation, much higher allocated to work. You have to respond to the market. Sometimes, Carly, you might have to short the stock. I'll let that marinate, ladies. But here is the point. (laughs) If you live your life like a diversified portfolio, there will be times that I have experienced market volatility, life volatility, like the death of my brother. There are times where I've had to shift to be more present as a mom because I could sense that my children really need more of mommy. I give myself permission to respond to the market conditions. So at any given moment, I may not be the best mom or I may not be the best executive, but over time, I am a really good mother and I am a really good CEO and I'm a really good daughter because if you live your life like a diversified portfolio, you're playing that long game and everything that matters to me brings me joy. So that's why I say live your life like a diversified portfolio because everything that you have in it brings you joy. And over time, you'll outperform this thing called life because everything that matters to you is in it. And you're giving yourself grace and permission to respond to the volatilities of life. I know that you are probably allocated, but like, do you have room to be my financial advisor? <laughs> my diversified portfolio? <laughs> no, <Carly>. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to say when I was reading about this, this philosophy, one thing I was concerned about or that gave me anxiety in reading it was how do you allocate yourself? Are you listed? Yes. Okay. Oh my goodness. Yes, I am allocated. And I think what's so great, you know, when you do this like work-life balance thing or whatever, you feel guilty. Well, I'm just responding to the market conditions. So I need a little more self-care right now. So I'm going to give me that allocation. To me, it releases the boundaries and you have to be in your portfolio if you really want to have joy. Who can have joy when you're not in it? What's the top thing you do for joy for yourself? My children bring me the most joy ever. In addition to that, I mean, I just love hanging out at the house. I love hanging out with my girlfriends, seeing my mom and dad, my brothers, just chilling sometimes, you know, brings me joy. Nothing like a good spa day, of course, and some wine and cheese is always great with some fresh flowers. My self-care is really being present with people who just adore me and who I adore. And it's the simple things of life, playing cards, playing games, watching the best man, (laughs) final chapters. (laughs) So yeah. I want to ask you a user question that we got from Allison. And Allison wants to know, what advice would you give to a woman listening about how she could prepare for retirement, 
especially knowing that there is a gender retirement gap. Well, the fact that Allison asked the question means, you know, she's already ahead of the game. And just to ground you on why this is so important, women make 83 cents on the dollar. We know that's even wider for women of color. And we retire with 30% less and we live longer. And so talking about retirement early is so important. And the reason is because of a simple word called compounding. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. And so, Allison, my advice to you would be first, make sure that as you're starting your career, you know your worth. So don't be afraid to negotiate. I would also say, you know, make sure you do your research, of course, so that you can feel confident about what you're negotiating. But then when it comes to retirement, first step is max out on your 401k or your 403b. Do not leave that money on the table. If someone says you're making $100,000, Carly, and then you have this match, that could be worth 10,000. And you're like, I'm good. So you want to give them $10,000 over 10 years. That's $100,000 that you left on the table. So max out on your 401k, max out on your 403b. Make sure you start early. When we think about retirement, we think about it something that we should think about later. But if you think about it later, you miss the compounding early. And so I think that's what's most important. Understand it now. And When I think about where we are now, many times, many of us are the sandwich generation. We're taking care of mom and dad. We're taking care of young children or we're the auntie. And we're trying to live our best life too. make it make sense. And so I think we have to make sure, especially as women, that we're thinking about retirement as part of our allocation early on and doing the simple things well, like maximizing your 401k and your benefits, but then also talking to an advisor early making sure that you're saving and you're investing and you have insurance like guaranteed income so that you never run out and you don't have to time your retirement. So I hope that helps, but get started today would be my goal and my advice. Last question, who is someone else we should have on the show? So there's so many amazing women. I want to give a name who's younger. Her name is Isa Watson. She's the founder and CEO of Squad, which is a social audio app. But what's so dope is she's a chemist turned corporate, turned entrepreneur. And she just launched a book called Life Beyond Likes. And when we think about mental health and when we think about the world of social media, how to make sure that you can still live your best life and not be consumed with all the likes around self-image, mental health, and friendship. So I think she would be a just-in-time guest. And so she would be someone that I think would be terrific. I love that. We will look her up. Thank you for that recommendation. We will keep you on schedule on time. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. and, And we've long admired you and your career. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise. 